Hello and welcome to Bad Gays, a podcast all about bad and complicated gay men from history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm an author and writer. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer and researcher and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. Last week we talked about Pietro Aretino, a blackmailer, poet and sodomite. Who are we talking about this week, Ben? Well, um, we'll find out in a minute, but I want to start with a poem. So, uh, in 2011, a professor of French literature at the Humboldt University here in Berlin, uh, the professor's name is Vanessa de Senaclan, uh, uncovered a poem among some letters. Written in 1740 and addressed to the Venetian philosopher and poet uh, Francesco Algarotti, the poem was entitled La Jouissance, or The Pleasure, or The Orgasm. And here's the poem, which is titled From Königsberg to Monsieur Algarotti, Swan of Padua, The Orgasm. This night, vigorous desire in full measure, Algarotti wallowed in a sea of pleasure. A body not even a Praxitile's fashions redoubled his senses and imbued his passions. Everything that speaks to eyes and touches hearts was found in the fond object that inflamed his parts. Transported by love and trembling with excitement, in Clarice's arms he yields himself to contentment. The love that unites them heated their embraces, and tied body and arms as tightly as laces. Divine sensual pleasure to the world a king, mother of their delights and unstaunchable spring. Speak through my verses, lend me your voice and tenses. Tell of their fire acts, the ecstasy of their senses. Our fortunate lovers, transported high above, know only themselves in the fury of love, kissing, enjoying, feeling, sighing, and dying. Reviving, kissing, then back to pleasure flying. And in Knidos's grove, breathless and worn out, was these lovers' happy destiny without doubt. But all joy is finite, in the morning ends the bout. Fortunate the man whose mind was never the prey to luxury or grand airs. One who knows how to say a moment of climax for a fortunate lover is worth so many eons of star-spangled honor. Wow, do we need an X-rated notice on this episode? I think we have them on all the episodes because we both have dirty mouths, but do you want to hazard a guess as to who wrote this poem? Uh, I can't possibly imagine. Well, the writer of this poem was no stranger to star-spangled honor. Uh, its writer was the legendary general and Prussian king, Frederick II of Hohenzollern, or Frederick the Great. Another, another great. Another great, yes. Another gay great. Another gay great who um, went on a kind of conquering rampage, had complicated issues with his uh, kind of buff military daddy and uh, various interesting male lovers. This one also wrote hundreds of flute concertos, but we'll get there. So Frederick the Great ruled the Kingdom of Prussia from 1740 until 1786, so a 46-year reign. Um, he was the last monarch who was king in Prussia, and he was the first to declare himself king of Prussia, and this had to do with basically how much of the historic Prussian lands he actually had sovereignty over. Um, for listeners, and for me, uh, where, where is Prussia? We'll get there. Okay. Um, he became known as Frederick the Great, uh, and his sort of nickname uh, to this day is Der Alte Fritz, the Old Fritz. Um, and he was gay. He was gayer than I ever knew, and I've already seen his big pink palace <laughs> on the outside of Berlin. I was wondering but, where you were going with that one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, um, so Frederick was the son of Frederick William I and his wife, Sophie Dorothy of Hanover. And he was born in Berlin on the 24th of January, 1712, and baptized with the single name Friedrich. Um, the two previous issue of that marriage had died in infancy, and so he was uh, very much a welcomed child. And his grandfather died in 1713, his father became king, and he became crown prince. His father had been educated by a French woman, uh, Madame de Recoul, who had educated him and brought him up as though he was a commoner. Um, and so his father decided to do the same thing for his children. And so Frederick was kind of educated and brought up uh, as a commoner, although by his nanny, by his nanny, and you know you're still living in a big palace. Um, Frederick William was known as the soldier king of Prussia. He did a lot to centralize the government and created a large army and ruled with a sort of militaristic absolute authority. Um, at this point, uh, this part of Germany uh, was not particularly uh, significant. Um, the core territory of uh, that family at the time was the province of Brandenburg, which uh, Berlin is situated in the middle of, and Brandenburg was known as the sandbox of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, it's sandy soil, it's lakes, heaths, bogs, and moors. It's not the most sort of fertile uh, or um, bountiful place if you're trying to kind of build an empire. And the other thing is, if you think about the map of Europe, it sort of is way up the hill over in the corner. Um, it's not very far from, and not very near, rather, to, uh, to other sort of major population centers. Um, but before Frederick uh, and Frederick William, uh, some improvements had been being made. Uh, his great-grandfather, Friedrich William, the great elector, had completed a canal uh, to allow shipping to cross um, from the rivers Oder to the river Spree and the river Havel, which basically meant that you could ship goods from the center of the territory out via the uh, North Sea, um, which before wasn't possible. And Frederick uh, was also kind of inherited the crown princeship and eventually the rulership of the Duchy of Cleve, which was uh, not geographically contiguous, but over west on the frontier of the sort of German territories with the Netherlands. Also in Germany, the Principality of Halberstadt and the Duchy of Magdeburg. Uh, the city of Magdeburg uh, was one of the, had one of the biggest cathedrals and strongest fortifications. And then also to the northeast of Brandenburg, there was the Duchy of Pomerania, which had a long coastline on the Baltic Sea. And then there was this kind of break of territory run by Poland, and then there was the territory of East Prussia, which was outside of the Holy Roman Empire, which is currently where um, Danzig is in Poland. That's East Prussia. At that point, it was part of Prussia. Gdansk. And that was the Gdansk. Yeah, exactly. And that was the sort of very edge of German-speaking Europe. Prussia, at this point, was still run by sort of a semi-feudal system. There was a manorial system. The, baroner, uh, the barons were called uh, Junkers, the noblemen. Uh, Junker is a German word that came from Jung Herr, young man. So it was, it was these kind of like wild young men out to make a fortune. And so the way it worked was that many small landowners were responsible for individual villages, and the peasants had sort of a serf-like relationship with those people. Um, and if you compare this to, uh, you know, the sort of chateaus, grand chateaux that are being built 
in France at this time, uh, the level of wealth here is much, much lower. These, you know, the manor houses in these villages in Wattenburg, many of which still exist, are one or two story low stone houses. I mean, very nice, better than living in a mud hut, um, better than being a peasant, but, you know, not on the level of luxury of, you would think of as the aristocracy of other places in Europe. Um, one major change that Frederick William, Frederick the Great's father, made was he began to make these landowners have their children serve in his army. Uh, it used to be that their children could sort of go off and, and do their military uh, service or do voluntary military service wherever they wanted, and Frederick William said, no, they have to come serve in my army, and what that did was that he doubled the size of his army, and so that becomes very important later. And as I mentioned, these Junkers were not particularly rich compared to other aristocrats in Europe uh, because, again, the land wasn't great. So Frederick was brought up by Huguenot governesses and tutors. Uh, he learned French and German simultaneously. Now, his father wanted him to have an entirely practical uh, and religious education. So history, military strategy, and Jesus, and that's about it. But the young Frederick, with the help of one of his tutors, rebelled and somehow got himself a 3,000-volume secret library of poetry, Greek classics, and French philosophy. This um, is him being brought up by a commoner, right? Yes. Um, now, Frederick William also wanted his son to be a great soldier, uh, but this was, uh, shall we say, difficult. Allow me to now relate a story from Christmas morning of Frederick the Great and every other gay boy who's been brought up by a manly man dad. Um, in 1717, um, right before his sixth birthday, uh, little Frederick was given by his father for Christmas a giant set of toy lead soldiers. So there were weapons and drums, flags, little cannons that actually worked. And um, Frederick looked at this looked away, opened up his favorite volume of French melodies, and was soon singing lute songs from the French <laughs> melody book to all of the women. Yes. So, uh, the other thing about Frederick William, the father, was that in addition to being uh, quite sort of militaristic and brutal, he was also very ill. He had a disease called porphyria, which gave him insomnia, headaches, nightmares, paranoia, swollen genitalia, constipation, blisters full of water, foaming at the mouth, and abdominal pain. Um, so you well, can imagine symptoms, yeah. that someone who's going through all of that and is kind of not the nicest guy to begin with is sort of a difficult dad to have. Um, and I can the, just picture him stood over his toy soldiers with his massive balls foaming at the mouth. Yeah, with little Frederick running around like, Daddy, I don't want to. Um, so at this point began this kind of uh, sustained campaign on the part of Frederick William to break Frederick's will um, and to kind of turn him into the son that he wanted him to be. Um, Frederick, uh, baby Frederick, was never praised by his father, was never shown any affection. Um, one book notes that he treated him worse than he did his court buffoons. Frederick William's nightmare was to have a sort of army-hating, luxury-loving son. Um, at some point during this period, uh, Frederick starts signing his letters Frédéric le Philosophe. Um, in the autumn of 1728, Frederick... Uh, wrote a letter to complain to his father of 
um, his treatment, the fact that he was being subjected to this sort of rude treatment. And uh, in his reply, Frederick William uh, denounced his son, said that he was an effeminate, he couldn't ride, he couldn't shoot, he wore his hair too long, and he looked and behaved like a fool. It's very similar to the story of Bosey from the first series, isn't it? Yes. Um, Frederick was beaten by his father in front of other people at the court, thrown to the ground and forced to kiss his father's feet. Jesus. So at a certain point, Frederick decides he's had well the hell enough of this and decides he's going to run away. And he tries to flee with his... I'm just going to go ahead and say lover, uh, Hans Hermann von Katte. So it's not known exactly when Frederick uh, met Kata. Um, they both attended uh, private math lessons in 1729 and became rapidly acquainted. Uh, Frederick was eight years younger. They both liked poetry and playing the flute. And a year later, uh, Frederick uh, told Kata that he had a plan to flee to Great Britain and um, asked for help and for him to join. And Kata first tried to convince Frederick this is a terrible idea, but at the end supported Frederick's plan to escape. Um, so in 5th August of 1730, when the royal court was in Mannheim, uh, Frederick tried to run away. Um, Kata was in Potsdam, which is near uh, where the sort of ruler's summer palace uh, was, waiting sort of for a sign. Um, there was a letter that was unmasked uh, that revealed that Kata was an accomplice, oh, no. and the two of them were arrested and imprisoned in a fort called Kustrin. Because they were army officers and they had tried to go to another country, they were both accused with treason and desertion. So Kata was found guilty of those things and was sentenced to lifelong imprisonment uh, until King Frederick William died. Uh, Frederick William personally intervened to order the sentence changed to beheading, declaring that, quote, it would be better that Kata came to death than the justice out of the world. Because Kata was an officer of the King's Guard, um, Frederick William's argument went that if uh, Kata was let off, the King's Guard would not be trustable. And there were several petitions of mercy for Kata, all of which were ignored. And Kata was then executed at the fortress at Kustrin, and the King uh, held Frederick's eyes open and forced him to watch the execution. Oh my god. Um, when... Kata was brought up to be executed. Frederick shouted to Kata in French, uh, "Please forgive me, my dear. Uh, please forgive my dear Kata in God's name. Please forgive me." Um, Kata called back, "There is nothing to forgive. I die for you with joy in my heart." And Frederick then fainted, which has led many historians to believe that they were just very good friends. Yeah. Wow, that's really up there with some of the most brutal stories we've heard on this podcast, right? Yeah, bad dads. That should be our spinoff. Yeah. So Frederick himself was imprisoned um, as well, and the only way that he escaped execution is because it would have looked too bad, among other kind of European nobles, for Frederick William to actually kill his son. And there was also no one else. I mean, there wasn't a younger brother to keep the bloodline going. So uh, he was in a weakened position in court, uh, but it was also starting to be time for him to get hitched. And Frederick, like many other 
gay men before him uh, was really attracted to a certain kind of powerful woman. He thought it would be a great idea, for example, to marry Maria Theresa of Austria, who was then the sort of regent uh, female empress of Austria, um, but was denied that and instead was married off to Elizabeth Christine of Brunswick Bevern. Frederick wrote to his sister uh, regarding the marriage that, quote, there can be neither love nor friendship between us. He almost killed himself, uh, but in 1733 uh, went along with the wedding, despite all of this. Once again, I'm going to do the historian disclaimer on myself that to call Frederick the Great gay involves a somewhat selective reading of historical evidence, and also the word gay doesn't really make any sense for people in the 1700s, but also it's an interesting way to think about him, so there. Um... So Frederick um, then spent the first years of his marriage, finally at least not in his father's house, devoting himself to the arts. But in 1740, uh, King Frederick William died, and uh, Frederick became the king in Prussia. Uh, Frederick concluded at the end of Frederick William's life that uh, his father had actually been an effective ruler. Quote, what a terrible man he was, but he was just, intelligent, and skilled in the management of affairs. It was through his efforts, through his tireless labor, that I have been able to accomplish everything that I have done since. So he becomes king in Prussia. He ran these sort of scattered, sandy territories, and the story of his flight and his lover was known among other European nobles, so he was considered to be weak and effeminate. But what he had was a big army. So at this time in Great Britain, one in 300 people were soldiers, and that was considered, that was like outrageous by the standards of Europe, outrageously large. In Prussia, one in 80 people were soldiers. Wow. So it was this enormous disciplined army that had been created by his father, and so Frederick set out on this campaign of conquest to try to connect and extend his territories. Um, so in 1740, uh, the First Silesian War, which is part of the War of the Austrian Succession, occurred. Frederick invaded and quickly occupied the province of Silesia, and in 1742 negotiated the Treaty of Breslau, which gave Prussia all of Silesia, uh, with the Austrians uh, keeping only a small portion. This gave uh, Prussia control over the Uda River, which is a navigable river, and doubled its population, economy, and territory. So he doubles the size in the first years of his reign. In 1744, uh, the last ruler of the territory of East Frisia dies, and Frederick inherits that because its ruler died without issue. In 1744, worried that the Austrians were gaining strength, he preemptively launched the Second Silesian War, won stunning victories on the battlefield, and his enemies had to sue for peace. And in 1745, uh, the Treaty of Dresden was signed, uh, which sort of reaffirmed the last treaty that Silesia was controlled now by Prussia. Um, Habsburg, Austria, and France, which had normally been enemies in 1756, decided to ally with one another after the Anglo-Austrian alliance collapsed, and Frederick responded to this by making an alliance with Great Britain and um, executing yet another preemptive strike. In 1756, he invaded Saxony and began the Third Silesian War, which also began the Seven Years' War, which lasted again seven years until 1763. And he forcibly incorporated the Saxon troops into the Prussian army and uh, was criticized widely for having launched an attack on Saxony, which was itself neutral. And he narrowly kept Prussia in the war. He had his territories 
repeatedly invaded. He suffered some defeats and was frequently uh, almost about to lose it all, but always managed to recover on the battlefield. And the Seven Years' War was remarkably pointless. Um, the ensuing treaty just returned the borders to what they had been before the goddamn thing started. But his ability to keep his territorial expanses uh, earned him a lot of admiration throughout the German-speaking territories. And there were many, many more wars, and I'm not going to run through all of them uh, because we're not a military history show and I am not a military historian. Um, so what we can see, though, is that contrary to what his father had feared, Frederick was very courageous in battle. He led his military forces personally, and he had six horses shot from him, uh, shot from under him during battle. He would, however, ride into battle on horseback holding his Italian greyhounds, who were his closest companions. <laughs> it's a look. It's a look. Um, Frederick was also very interested in domestic rule. Uh, he reformed the state politically and strengthened it economically. Um, he reformed the judicial system. He allowed freedom of speech, the press, and literature, this sort of idea of the enlightened monarch, uh, abolished most uses of torture, um, and made it so the death penalty could only be carried out with a warrant signed by him, and he only signed a small handful uh, per year and only for murder. So basically abolished, mostly abolished the death penalty. And he also made it possible for uh, commoners to become judges and senior bureaucrats. He also attracted a lot of scientists to Berlin, uh, researchers. He founded a trade company to promote trade with China. He created one of the world's first lotteries, a fire insurance for the public, and a credit bank. He also instituted a series of government storehouses which would store grain so that when the harvest was poor, people wouldn't die. Okay. Um, and then he also focused on building himself a spectacular and lovely court life. So as soon as he became king, he banned his wife from his court, and he built her a separate palace 40 kilometers away, which is a full day's walker carriage ride from where his was. Um, and so uh, he built himself, as I mentioned earlier, an enormous pink Rococo palace on top of a giant staircase with fountains and grape trellises, and called it Sans Souci, which means without a care, without worries. Um, in this palace, he was a great patron of the arts. He composed hundreds of flute sonatas and concertos. His court musicians included uh, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, and actually he had sort of a famous meeting with Johann Sebastian Bach, where Bach wrote uh, the musical offering based on kind of prompts from Frederick. Uh, Voltaire lived at Sans Souci for a while before fleeing in the middle of the night under mysterious circumstances. The interior of Sans Souci Palace was designed to his own specification. Uh, the palace is much smaller and more informal, less fancy than, for example, Versailles or other European palaces, but it's still very fancy, don't worry. It's complete Rococo environments with objects, works of art, relief carvings, paintings, silk tapestries, pink, gold, pink, pink mirrors, pink, gold, and pink. And this style became known as uh, Frederican Rococo. Mm. The Liberace of Prussia. Exactly. Uh, he planted 3,000 fruit trees in the park, laid out greenhouses and nurseries. He was raising oranges, melons, peaches, and bananas, statuaries, obelisks, several temples and follies built in different Rococo styles. Um, 
and the palace gardens included a temple of friendship that Frederick designed, which celebrated the homoerotic attachments of Greek antiquity. Uh, how gay was Frederick? <laughs> After one defeat on the battlefield, Frederick wrote, quote, Fortune has it in for me. She is a woman, and I am not that way inclined. <laughs> so now we get to the poem that we opened the show with. In 1739, Frederick met uh, Algarotti, Francesco Algarotti, who was a Venetian philosopher, and they were infatuated with one another. And Algarotti told him that he uh, wouldn't come and accept his offer of being a count because Northern Europeans lacked passion. And Frederick responded with that poem that we heard earlier. Um, Frederick's tendencies were actually quite well known across Europe. William Hogarth, uh, his painting The Toilet, is a picture of a flautist standing next to a picture of Zeus abducting Ganymede and therefore is often read as a satirical depiction of Frederick. Therefore, in 1744, we have this uh, here. In 1750, uh, Voltaire began to write his memoirs, and the manuscript was stolen and privately published in Amsterdam in 1784, and in the section that was published, which was retitled The Private Life of the King of Prussia, Voltaire detailed Frederick's homosexuality and the circle surrounding him. Um, and there had also been a pamphlet published in London in 1752 in French, which used similar language, so it's possible that sort of earlier versions of that had also kind of leaked. Um, and by the end of their lives, uh, Frederick and Voltaire had actually uh, resumed correspondence, and they sort of died as friends. His other uh, intimate friendship was with his um, butler, or valet, Michael Gabriel Friedersdorf, who uh, Frederick wrote in his diary, had, quote, a very pretty face. Friedersdorf was provided with an estate. He became the unofficial prime minister, private treasurer, um, director of the Royal Theater, and in Sanssouci, the valet's bedroom adjoined his own. Um, the Royal Gardens director referred to uh, this valet as, quote, the king's chamber lover in a book in 1789. Near the end of his life, Frederick grew increasingly solitary. His circle of close friends gradually died off, and he became quite critical and arbitrary. He was popular among his people, but didn't really like being around them. Uh, what he really liked was to hang out at Sanssouci with his Italian greyhounds, and he referred to these greyhounds as his Marquis de Pompadour, which was a jibe at the various French royal mistresses. At 74, he died, and he left instructions that he wanted to be buried simply next to his greyhounds on the vineyard terrace. His nephew and successor, he had no children with his wife, who was not allowed to come to his palace, <laughs> you'll be shocked to know. Um, and he crucially was a woman. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many children he had with the valet, but I'm sure they tried real hard. Um, his nephew and successor uh, ordered the body to be entombed next to his father instead, in the sort of official tomb in the Potsdam Church. Oh, that sucks. And that official tomb then became a national monument for right-wing German nationalists who suppressed the gay part of the story. These famous pictures of Hitler going and laying a wreath and kind of claiming this uh, legacy as his own. Frederick the Great was certainly a major inspiration for the emerging homosexual emancipation movements in Wilhelmine and Weimar Germany, especially for masculinists who, much like Alexander the Great, really relished having a kind of 
military hero who was very kind of legible on these traditional masculine terms, what they understood as being traditional masculine terms. Um, also, in the German context, it was a national hero. And so the idea that this national hero of the Prussian Empire was gay was really something that they used to develop maybe what we might call an early kind of homo-nationalist agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, the Prussian Empire would evolve into the eventual unified Germany. Um, when Germany reunified, it did so under the Prussian kings and under the Hohenzollern family, this particular family. And so Frederick the Great uh, was this kind of enormous national hero who could then be very easily reclaimed, again, because there was so much contemporaneous uh, information about his inclinations, uh, whatever we want to read them as having been. Um, and then after the reunification of Germany, uh, on the 17th of August, 1991, Frederick was exhumed, his casket lay in state in Sanssouci, and after nightfall he was laid to rest in the terrace of the vineyard at Sanssouci in the crypt that he had built there, and he lies there to this day, according to his will, under a very simple stone, and hopefully the greyhounds are somewhere nearby. Well, that's a nice ending. It is, isn't it? So we've been totally overwhelmed by the success of the show so far. Thank you so much to all of you for listening, but a big special thank you goes out to all of our Patreon donors. Yeah, so far you've funded a second season and an ongoing series of special episodes, and you've really helped us to improve our audio quality. But there is a lot more that we'd like to do, uh, and we're not sponsored by anyone. We're not backed by any media company. We make the show for you, hopefully soon with more episodes, more interviews, and you let us know that you appreciate the show by giving what you can. So now's the time we awkwardly ask for money. So, to support the show, visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to sign up. We send you newsletters, zines, novels, and more, depending on your level of support. Anything you can give is really appreciated, and if money's tight, a good review on iTunes or on your podcast app really, really helps us find new audiences. Thanks. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod. Thanks. And now, before our conversation, as a little bit of a treat, we're going to play you all a few seconds of one of Frederick the Great's flute compositions. music is that good well um it's not not without quality um it's a little boring but a lot of court music from this period is a little boring so you know it's no worse than a lot of stuff that was written and we do know that frederick was a great appreciator of very good music indeed i mean he had members of the bach family um working for it with him so uh, maybe a, one of many people who's a better patron than a uh, creator, but patrons are important. Yeah. Um, I've been. Th- I have a few questions. Considering what happened to him, the way he was treated by his father, and especially the way his um, young boyfriend was treated, uh, did he do anything to change the position of 
homosexuals within German society or in Prussian society? Well, I'm going to be annoying and say that there were no homosexuals in German society at this time because homosexuals didn't exist until the latter part of the 19th century. But if you want to talk about sodomites... Um, I always want to talk about sodomites. Me too. That's why we're friends. Um, so when Frederick became king, the law in Prussia was an old law from the legal books of the Holy Roman Empire, um, you know, that empire of Germany that was neither holy nor Roman, and that law prescribed for sodomy between men or between man and beast, uh, death by fire. Wow. And in 1784, Frederick brought in a new Prussian legal code, which had the comparatively far more enlightened uh, punishment of four to six years imprisonment and the loss of civil rights. Um, now, that law would be adopted when Germany was reunified uh, under the Prussian sort of legal uh code in 1870, and that became the infamous paragraph 175, against which that early German uh, homosexual emancipation movement organized and fought. So, And which continued through the Nazi period and even after Nazi Even Nazi after, yeah. 100,000 people were, um, were arrested under it after the Nazi period in West Germany by the West German government immediately post-war, which was basically Nazis who were too low down to try. Um, the other thing I'll say is that that legal reform didn't come on its own. It came in as part of a whole new kind of package of laws that um, Frederick made for Prussia. It was a whole new legal code, so it wasn't that he personally went in and rewrote this. It's just that the law happened to be changed under his reign. Sure. Um, so. And this is just prior to, I guess, the French Revolution and then the development of the Napoleonic Code, which was what decriminalized homosexuality for large parts of Europe, right? Yeah. This would have been just before then, so it's this odd moment of, well, the decriminalization of sodomy, and then maybe the extension or the expansion of uh, the number of people engaging in sodomy, and then you get into the creation or the instantiation of the figure of the homosexual, who, as I will keep repeating, does not exist before the second part of the 19th century. Yeah. But that's because I'm a historian and I'm annoying. No, no, I think it's an important distinction to make. Um for our contemporary understanding of yeah, I mean, uh, this homosexuality is, you know, as well. Frederick the Great was having sex with men. It's the easiest thing in the world to think, oh, that makes him, well, gay. But, you know, he's also living in an era where the understanding of marriage is that your wife is someone you see once a year at formal events who lives a day's walk away. So, you know, yeah. who is selected for you by your family. Um, yeah. So it's not, you know, all of this is very different. Um, to what extent, and I don't want to get too much into pop psychology here, but to what extent do you think that his early ambitions for conquest were driven by both his relationship with his father and then his desire to prove to other European rulers that he wasn't a sissy, to coin a phrase? I think to a great extent. Um, and I think he also probably internalised a great deal of his father's values, even though he had sort of fought against them. Um, because that does seem to be an interesting contrast in his personality, which is that he's this uh, ferocious war leader on one side, but also he has the greyhounds and the flutes on the other. Yeah, and you know, it wouldn't be the first kind of imperial conqueror to assuage his conscience by saying that, you know, well, it's because I'm more enlightened than all of the other rulers. You know, when I come to rule over these people, they'll have freedom of speech and they'll have this legal code and commoners will be able to be... Um, officials, and that's not entirely untrue. I mean, he wasn't 
certainly differently from Alexander the Great. He actually did uh, exhibit a lot of interest in governing and not just governing by execution, but actually, you know, governing. Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about his reception by gay men after his death mm-hmm. um, and how he was remembered and used. What about more generally? Is he still regarded in Germany as Frederick the Great? Well, it's interesting. So he was a um, very much a kind of icon of the uh, Prussian and then later the German Empire under his family, under the Hohenzollerns. Um, and then I would say even under the even in the years of the Weimar Republic, maybe a little bit less, but still certainly regarded, especially by conservatives, as this kind of icon of German masculinity, of German national masculinity, and of German conquest um, to the point where he is greatly venerated by Hitler and many other uh, Nazi leaders. Um, And then after the war, um, there's this kind of avoidance of Frederick because he had been so sort of puffed up by the Nazis and because the idea of German military conquest suddenly had very different connotations even for many people within Germany. Um, In the early 1990s after German reunification, I should also say that in East Germany, um, Frederick was not particularly remembered because he was a king, and so it was part of the bad king time. Mm-hmm. Um, after reunification, Frederick has been sort of rehabilitated as a kind of public figure and as a figure of public history. Uh, the palace complex in Potsdam, including Sanssouci, is one of the most visited tourist destinations in Berlin. If any of you listeners are going to come to Berlin, I highly recommend you go. It is even gayer than I have described, I promise. Um, And a really kind of lovely afternoon out there amongst the trees. Um, And I think in some strange way, the gay part of the story has actually helped among kind of liberals and left liberals to make Frederick an acceptable hero once again. Uh, We're actually now in this new age of um, kind of gay acceptance, the idea that there's this kind of gay figure actually makes it easier for kind of right-thinking Germans who might feel uncomfortable celebrating German nationalism to maintain their ironic affection for Alte Fritzi, as some of the old queens still refer to him. He's the Pete Buttigieg of the Prussian Empire. Oh God, no. (laughs) Um, No, it's interesting. Do you you think... um, it's interesting in how many of these men that we go back and look at, how few of the for, for how few of them before the twentieth century, there was a there seemed to be a problem that or that, that homosexuality w- was seen as a complication or problem of masculinity. That it seemed actually that there were problems of homosexuality, but it wasn't necessarily about them being less masculine or or that being a problem with their masculinity. Is that like an American and English language thing? Is that a 20th century thing? No. um, I think it's complicated, as with everything. Um, The pre-quote-unquote homosexual model of sort of what male-male romance and sexual behavior is, is really different and looks really different in different places and has different meanings for different people at different times and it depends if you're a king or a peasant or you know sort of who and what you are 
um, when the homosexual is institutionalized, whether that's pathologized from the outside or kind of self-identified from the inside, that's really where this link to gender inversion kind of comes in. Um, and then in the mid-20th century is the kind of turn back away from that, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely sense. So, Frederick the Great, good gay or bad gay? This is a tough one. Um, I mean, on the one hand, he's starting totally pointless wars to prove that he's a real man. On the other hand, if you had to live in one of these monarchies in the mid-1700s, I would probably have chosen Prussia, as long as uh, he didn't take too great an interest in me and didn't have to run away in the middle of the night. <laughs> what would you say, Hugh? Um, it depends on the level at which you approach it. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, because on one level, you know, um, how can you have any sympathy for a lot of these great leaders? And I would take a more... Um, uh, you know, when you, when you actually think about it um, in relationship to normal people at the time and, you know, coming from a, a left position. But um, in context, uh, I think managed to make the best of a bad situation, which I think is a is the result, you know, as a lot of these sort of men seem to be in that position. Um, yeah. I find it hard, complicated. I find it hard to hate anyone who loves Italian greyhounds. I know, they're so cute. They're gorgeous animals. Well, uh, I'm going to recommend three kind of main sources here for readers who are interested in learning more about Fritzi. And these were also my main sources for research on this show. Uh, the first is an article uh, from uh, the Australian Humanities Journal called Kingship, Sexuality, and Courtly Masculinity, Frederick the Great in Prussia on the Cusp of Modernity by Bodie Ashton, and that contains the text of the erotic poem with which we began. There's a fabulous biography by Tim Blanning from 2016 called Frederick the Great, King of Prussia, and then also a book that's sort of about uh, Frederick as patron, and Frederick especially as patron of the Enlightenment, uh, the book is called Evening in the Palace of Reason, Bach Meets Frederick the Great in the Age of Enlightenment by James R. Gaines. Thanks so much for listening to the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is at hugh.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow the show at BadGazePod. If you liked what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to donate, and or you can leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast provider to help us grow our audience. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bad.